Hey everybody, Josh here. Just chiming in to let you know that this is part one of an interview that Mel and I did with the really incredible and just super likable John Arthur Elliott, who you may know as the camel guy. He's a former successful business person and now is basically a full-time adventurer. So he just delivered a whole heap of interesting stories and he's such a great person and we ended up talking for about twice as long as we'd organized to and a lot of it was really good. So we're mindful of your guys' time. We don't want to bury you down with an hour and a half long episode out of the blue. So this is part one. There's heaps of camel chats, way more interesting than I ever imagined they could be. John shares some really incredible moments from the trip, both amazing and also very tough and he's just such a cool dude. To support the show, listen to the show, and everything to do with the show, you can go to Punching Sideways. I won't blather on anymore. Let's do this thing. Melza, welcome back to the studio. How are you going? Thanks for having me. Looks pretty much the same as what it always does. I'm just going to stop bouncing around right now. I'm super <laughs> I couldn't actually excited. hear that, but yes, I could tell. I'm really excited for this guest. I picked it. You were in your producer Mel phase at that point. Yes, at that point. And still am. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Probably out of all the people that you've sent me stuff about, it was the thing where it instantly grabbed me the most. I'm like, okay, that's a person and a story I think we have to have on here. <laughs> yeah. Um, can I say who we have? Let's please? do it. Because people are going to hear who. <laughs> I know. Uh, John Arthur Elliott, who is otherwise known as the Camel Man, pretty much. He, he just uprooted his life and started walking around Australia with camels. But his life was different from what? it is today yeah um yeah and it was also a life that a certain percentage of people probably the majority would have thought he had a near perfect existence in some ways and or in many ways to then as you said uproot that and to do something that's not just a slight change it wasn't like he was very successful business person then went to india to you know, find himself. Yeah, to find himself, yeah. he decided to travel around one of the world's largest continents with some camels. <laughs> yeah, and, and look, oh, he just impresses me, to be honest. He's a really nice, open guy from what I've gathered, and everyone that I know and I've talked to that has met him in his travels has been embraced with this um, generosity. Yep. of his story and just sharing. So he's definitely not just – he's giving back a lot, yep. what he's getting back from other people, I think. So that, that's where I resonate with, with him. Yeah, I'm super excited. I don't think I've been this excited about a non-local guest for this show because we had some early on before yep. Mel and then since then we've stuck purely local. But I think there's also some connection to the area. Yeah, it comes under a, a local banner for me because he did walk through this area yeah. and there's a lot of cool stories. And made an impact on people, which is, yeah. yeah. Uh, my mum was, come and meet the camel guy. <laughs> and, and I didn't, How does that conversation go? Does that, do you just get a call out of the blue? It's like she's trying to hook you up with a, boy, a boyfriend <laughs> and know. his name's the camel guy. To be honest, and I, I feel bad because I didn't really give it a much thought when she was saying he's down at the pub go meet him and I wish I had of now um so now I'm going to do the next best thing and Skype him in from Tasmania (laughs) that's it so just before we get to John the funny thing that you just said there was the first time you sent me information about him I read the headline 
Oh, it's amazing. Successful millionaire changes life and travels around with camels. And the first time I didn't really, I didn't even watch it. I just read the headline. I'm like, I'm not sure whether that's something I'm interested in. And then you just prodded me again about a week later. Did you watch that video? And then as soon as I did, I'm like, okay, that guy's cool. Yeah. <laughs> We've got to have him on. So cool. I mean, I, I wouldn't have the patience to do that, I don't think. But yeah, I, I'm impressed. There's a lot of commitment that has gone into what he is doing and or maybe a lot of neurosity. <laughs> is that a word? That yeah, a- neurosity it is now. I don't know what it means, but maybe we can <laughs> define that through the conversation. It's a word in my head. I will explain it later. There's a lot of words in your head. Righto. So this is John Arthur Elliott, otherwise known as the camel guy. Yeah, the camel guy. And he's coming to us from Tasmania, which is pretty sweet too. So Yeah, okay. super sweet. Let's do it. Welcome to Punching Sideways. Uh, pretty special guest we've got on today, Josh. Yeah, John Arthur Elliott. Welcome. He's coming to us. Where was it from? I know there's an eagle hawk near Bendigo, Victoria, which I've given a bit of flack to in the past, but was it? Is this an eagle hawk ridge? Was that correct? Or? Yeah, eagle, eagle hawk neck. So it's a small little, uh, small little bridge that connects the uh, mainland Tasmania to the Tasman Peninsula uh, going out to Port, Port Arthur. Oh, wow. Are you are you looking forward to, to going to Port Arthur? Have you been there yet? No, so look, I probably won't. I'll probably turn around and start heading towards um, uh, heading towards Hobart. Um, so that's a pretty big part of the trip, getting through there. But uh, I really just popped down here to uh, see a newfound friend who is a, uh, a photographer and he's done a few little cool expeditions himself, done a, a solo sail most of the way around the world. Oh, wow. Uh, when he, 20s and uh so when you come across people who've got like cool stories as well you kind of you go out of your way to catch up and compare notes yeah well speaking of cool stories for anyone who who doesn't know who you are john arthur elliott can you just uh give us a little bit of a background i'm just going to i just know you as the camel man like that's all i've heard is the camel man have you seen the camel man you came down to our area in aubrey wodonga like towards the start of this year and firstly, how did this whole adventure come about? That's probably the the big pressing question, first of all. Yeah, yeah so I, was, I had a more corporate life in the past and uh, I was uh, sitting there and I was the CEO of a financial services firm. I had a nightclub and uh, living a, a probably in some people's eyes a pretty, pretty high life. But I had this little, little snapshot where I'd see a, uh, 50-year-old guy that would walk into, like, the nightclub and he's still, you know, worrying about what car he drives and how good he looks, trying to pick up some 20-something and uh, thinking that that's kind of the key to life. And I looked at that and it's like, that's that's not where I want to end up. Like, he's not still nailing life. He's just on that merry-go-round, coming back to the same spot every weekend. So uh, I knew I didn't want to be that, so I made the decision to leave all that corporate life behind and I was really looking for adventure. And... Uh, I had no idea what I was going to do and it was only a, a month from leaving the job and I was having dinner with this girlfriend of mine one night and a few reads into it, she mentioned this camel travel story where she was over in Kenya and um, she entered this two-day camel race 
And not only was she only female, she was the only white person in the race, and she came second, won like 8,000 pounds, and it paid for her whole trip when she was like 19. So that got us talking. I was like, yeah, I was looking for some adventure, like camels. I think we've got a heap of those in Australia. So (laughs) I made the decision that night that it was probably going to be camel-related, this next adventure, and the next day I Googled how do you buy a camel because I had no idea. And uh, within a month I was off learning how to train camels and decided I was going to go for a walk across Australia. Wow. So how long did it take from when you Googled camels and when you started training camels to actually start walking with them? Like how many, how long did the whole process take? A, a little over a year. So the first six months I was just running around to uh, learn whatever I could and um, train for not just the camel but like different elements. So like spending a month in the little sandy desert by myself, just seeing how I liked that isolation factor and learning some bush survival skills and just whatever I could because all I brought to the table was like good keyboard skills, which don't mean shit out here. So <laughs> there was like there was not one skill that I brought to the table that was going to be really relevant uh, for, for the trip. So the year was just a really about finding how I liked that and uh, getting in front of and spending time with anyone who, who had something to teach me uh, to get the trip. So uh, going. So I had – uh, six months of running around doing that, and I got my camels about six months into it uh, in August 2018, and then I took the first step on the actual trek uh, on April 11th, my birthday in 2019. So I've been walking for 18 months uh, this week. Wow. So the camels' names, Charlie, Ted, Arthur, Jackson, and Bill. Bill the Bastard. Is he? Yeah. Is that- that's, that's the name, Bill the Bastard. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, did they come named or you've named them? Like, did you name them these names? Yeah, yeah. So named them all those names. So we got uh, Ted Osborne at the front. He's named after my two mentors that taught me a lot about cameleering. Uh, Jackson's named after my son, Arthur after my father, Bill after my great-grandfather, uh, the bastard he earned himself, and uh, Charlie because he was a nice, cute little white camel uh, when I first got him and I thought, oh, white camel, I'm going to call him cocaine. And then <laughs> and then I did a, a school visit and it was really awkward, you know, rocking up with cocaine, the camel, so I changed his name to Charlie. thought it was more appropriate. That's great. <laughs> just, sorry, John, you mentioned that you did a little bit of isolation training just to see how you felt like that. And in our pre-chat today, you mentioned that you were living a pretty exciting life or that at least was a public perception that you had a lot going on socially. How was that first purely isolating night or week? Because that would have been different for a nightclub owner to suddenly get pulled to a completely different world, I would assume. Yeah, so, yeah, because you're always surrounded by people. So all of a sudden when you're surrounded, you know, I didn't have the dog, I didn't have any of the camels, it's just bang, it's just you with your own company. So... The excitement and the uh, the change of the environment kind of carries you into it, and then the reality starts to you know outweigh the you know the excitement that you brought into it. So uh, yeah, it starts when when you've only got yourself and your own thoughts. It's, it starts to consume you, and you really got to take control of that. So I found for me, music was a great thing to to help uh, affect my mood. So if you're feeling a little flat, but you got things to do, the right five tracks could kind of get you back on track and uh and then it started to you know you start to get into the swing of things when there's just no other option than than where you're at and what you're doing you start to i suppose yeah become a part of it and uh and, and it starts to become a part of you like 
I've got a tent that I, I brought with me on this trip and I've only used it seven times because you just stop trying to create a barrier between you and that natural world, you and that outside world. You, you stop trying to create a little safe space and you just start to learn to become a part of it. And I think that's uh, one of the things I picked up from my time in, in the little sandy desert to stop trying to create those barriers like we do in the normal world of having a, you know, a wall, a roof, a, a, you know, a membrane between you and, and reality for, for what's out there. So you weren't doing any glamping by the sounds of things. It was <laughs> you've become no. yeah, accustomed to your circumstances a bit more. So did you yeah, have any? Pretty... I think Mel had some camel follow up there. So <laughs> no, it wasn't a camel follow up. I was curious to what your your get up and go songs are actually. Uh, yeah, what songs were they, mate? Uh, I think it was like it's a bit of a bit of variety. So I actually uh, one of the ones that got me smiling is I uh, downloaded the start of like uh, the theme song for for Russell Coit. Like for, uh, <laughs> yeah, getting, getting a bit of that going was like just reminded me to not take things too seriously and be out there and enjoy it. So I think a lot of them were based around not being like a dance and upbeat kind of thing, but something to bring a bit of a smile to my face Yeah, and, uh, and, and to just have a bit of fun and not take things too seriously. I like that already. Oh, I'm sitting here thinking, time to hit the road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So was it camel-earing or camel-tearing? Was it camel-earing? Leering. Camel-earing. In that yep. exploratory period where you were learning from these mentors that you had, John, did you have any thoughts of why am I choosing camels over horses or why am I bringing an animal on this trek to begin with? Like what did those guys yeah. teach you about camels? Yeah, so when I first came up with the idea, I had these thoughts that I'd be riding majestically a camel, you know, across <laughs> across Australia uh, and as soon as I started the training process, like uh, any Camelier worth worth their great assault uh, has has to um, walk in front. You know, you've got more control, and it's about being a part of the herd, not riding them. So all these things started to come at us, and um, the training brought brought the reality of what the trip's going to be like. But uh, I also started to connect with the history of camels in Australia. You know, that were brought out here. There was a couple, two camels that came out before, but the main uh, camels that came out were for the Burke and Wills operation, and with the success of the camels in that. Uh, operation they uh they started to bring in more and more they started to build telegraph lines they started to you know build the the garn railway is obviously named after the uh the afghan camel handlers that uh that helped build it with the camels and and even like small little facts like there's a size of a, a bale of wool in australia the the bale size is set at 170 odd to 200 odd uh, kilograms but the size shape and weight of it is because that's what a camel could carry either side. And that, you know, that's still the same size and shape and weight today. So like just how much camels affected uh, a lot of regional and outback Australia and, and really connected them to to be able to make industries like that possible. And, I, and I'm sitting here clueless of, of that history of Australia. So you, you really started to get into it a, little more, uh, a lot more uh, as you went through the training process and learned how integral they were with Australian history. It's so fascinating because you never think of camels as a, an Australian iconic animal, but there's nothing more iconic than the wool industry in Australia and the fact that wool bales have been designed to accommodate a camel's back, basically, um, yeah. is, is a pretty significant piece of history. Just so John knows and anyone who is listening, we both grew up on farms, different kinds of farms, but... We, I mean, my dad was an electrician but had a hobby farm essentially but had some sheep and he 
would shear them obviously every year. Yep. And I grew up for 10, 15 years around those same bags you're talking about and had no clue about the history of why they're that size. Because you look at them, you're like, well, that is not manageable at all for a human being. <laughs> like it's this yeah. weird size. Yeah, and then you kind of hear that and you're like, well, now it makes now it makes a whole lot of sense. You look at the, you know, oblong kind of shape of it and you go, yeah, well, that would fit perfectly on the side of a camel saddle. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's really cool. So tell me why I, I sort of still want to know why did you pick five? Is that like the herd number that you're supposed to have? Is that all part of the camelering as well, or do you just need to be able to carry a ton? Well, a, a lot of the uh, decisions I made that uh, make up the track of what it is today were made whilst I pretty much knew nothing about camels. So uh, the mentor that taught us about um, uh, the first camel camelier mentor that I had is a guy named Russell Osborne, and he did a six and a half thousand kilometre trek around Australia with his wife and eight camels. So I went, well, that's two people, eight camels, so I'm one person, I'll go four. And that was like a, the logic behind having four. But then I came through Gundawindi and I saw this herd of about 15 camels on a farmer's property and uh, I saw this cute little white camel and I said to him, well, what's my chances of buying that little white camel off you? And he goes, well, mate, if you can catch it, you can have it. (laughs) What he didn't tell me was it was 12,000 bloody acres uh, that these camels were roaming on and they'd (laughs) never been caught. So two days of running around and I finally caught little Charlie and, uh, trained him up and, and he added to the line, but he won't carry a bag or a saddle. He won't be big enough to do that on the whole entire trip. So, trip. so he's just literally along for the ride because he looked cool and uh, <laughs> to drag him along. So he serves literally zero purpose for the trip other than being cute. So it's the Outback Camel version of seeing a cute puppy at the pet store. You're like, pretty, okay, I'm taking you home. <laughs> yeah, gonna, pretty much. I was going to say it's like having a good-looking chick at a nightclub handbag <laughs> to carry <laughs> Handbag camel. <laughs> yeah, it's my, it's my arm candy. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, just just since we've sort of touched on um, the nightclub thing, so you're from Perth. I don't know whether we touched on that before. Firstly, do you have any regrets from making this decision at all, like just chucking the towel in on one life and moving towards this? We should preface that too. I don't know whether John mentioned it, but your your company for all intents and purposes yeah. was seen as very successful. Yeah, we, we, had, we had won two BRW Fast 100s, which puts us uh, for uh, a rolling average of five years in the top 100 fastest growing companies in Australia. So it was... Uh, yeah, it was going extremely well. So, you know, a lot of people were left confused when like at the, the, the height or the peak, you kind of just choose to pull the ripcord and, and, and exit. I think when you do something like that, like people look, uh, uh, sometimes it's quite confronting for people because you're surrounded by people who want to get to where you where, where I was. And so when you voluntarily just step away from it, there's two questions they can either ask themselves. They can either ask themselves uh, the question of like, is going for the, all that stuff and the nice cars and, and, and the cash and, and trying to get all that, is, is that actually going to solve all my problems? Is it going to be that, you know, that Hail Mary that I think it's going to be that I'm working my ass off to go towards? Or has he gone nuts uh, or something happened in his life? And so it's much easier for them to go to option two than it is to ask themselves that question. So when I first left, there was a lot of rumours and innuendo and stuff going around, but after being out here for now two and a half years, you know, the time has just sorted all of those out. You know, maybe 
maybe I should be asking myself those questions. So people are starting to now kind of really jump on board and get why why I'm doing it or, or start to question those things themselves. They're having those conversations with themselves. So do you have any of the past, I'll put them in the past life category, do they reach out to you at all now or it's almost like you've you've cut that cord completely and you don't want to be a product of the environment that you were in? No, so there's probably a, there's a, a small refined group, you know, like it's kind of like I've taken a small amount of uh, people from that previous life that I still remain connected with and, and that's almost strengthened with a smaller group because I've got more time now as opposed to spreading myself over the the big amount of people that I was trying to before. Now it's just I've got a small focus group to like concentrate on that, that really supported me from day one. But there wouldn't be really regret, going back to your original question, I, I don't think there'd be regret sitting around that there was a lot of FOMO when I first started because you're looking on Instagram and Facebook and social media at these people carrying on these lifestyles. So you're seeing, you know, you're on a hard day and you're seeing them, you know, enjoying drinks at the pub or doing whatever. But after about a year, you notice it's the same people, like in slightly different clothes, uh, going to the same places, doing the exact same thing. You start to realize that you've escaped that cycle. Yeah. Um, of not uh, living for the weekend. Uh, you, you kind of, you're branched out and you're doing something completely different. So that fear of missing out really stopped after the first 12 months. It's, a, it's, it's, it's huge, yeah. still a long time, 12 months, to get yeah. to that at that point of just seeing that stuff in front of you. You've you've left your family. How, how have you found So most of us are complaining about being away from their family through COVID for like six months potentially, and you say you've been travelling around for almost two years or two years. How how has that been? Has that taken a toll or has it also strengthened those relationships? Look, it, it strengthened it because it's also the value of with COVID, people are uh, held back beyond their will. You know, it's not a voluntary choice they've made, which makes it a, a massive point of frustration. So, you know, I'm not even in that, I'm out here voluntarily. So, you know, you've made a conscious decision to do it, which is, I think, easier to handle because it's not been imposed on you. So I think that's really strengthened some of the relationships with my family. Like I'll speak to my mother on the phone for much longer and uh, much more detail because she's really into what I'm doing now. When when I was running a business and living that previous kind of life, we would chat a little bit, but we didn't really have a com- too many common connections other than being mother and son to, to have a, a, a further discussion. So we'll spend a couple of hours on the phone now, whereas before it would be five minutes and then where's dad? So... Um, that's been really good. And also with my sisters that are all in Canberra, one of the first detours I took on the trip was to walk an extra thousand kilometers to go hang out with all my sisters and family in Canberra for a, uh, a family Christmas. So you get pretty good kudos when you walk a thousand kilometers to make the family Christmas do. <laughs> yeah. You get the good chair at the table. <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> Ultimate boss move. Yeah. <laughs> Just rolling. It's better than rolling in in a flash car, really. The reception that you get with walking in with camels surely is a better reception than the flashiest car that you used to drive. Uh, it depends on what you're after. Like, yeah. uh, I suppose I, I can give you one advice. If you're looking at meeting lots of lovely ladies and, and expanding that part of your life out, do not get camels. Like, <laughs> like 
it might be the week long periods between showers or I don't know what it is, but they, they might like the camels, but you go up and say hi and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah no, I'm just, just here for the camels. So <laughs> not, not the guy that smells like the camels. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Whereas with a sports car, you know, maybe they stick around a little bit longer. So well, what do you do? I would so put it, 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 sorry, I would put it to you that the lovelier ladies would hang around with the camel and the camel smell. That maybe the one your perception of a lovely lady that is just driven by the aesthetic of the flash car and the fancy suit and everything potentially isn't a lovely lady down. <laughs> down yeah, yeah, look, I, and you, you, I, I definitely agree with that. And I suppose the uh, but uh, you know when you've li- when you've lived kind of both, you know, like it's a uh, it, that's probably something where in the first twelve months, so you know you're addressing the FOMO of that because you've had one. You know, yeah. where everything's easy, accessible, and you can have it right now. You know, it's uh, uh, immediate gratification on on whatever you want. All you need to do is just keep on, you know, getting out there and earning more money. But when you come on this here, there's so much distance between, uh, you know, the next PowerPoint, the next tap of running water, like your change of like what's amazing is a completely different metric, like on a completely different matrix. John, did it take – a period of time across that 12 months to align yourself maybe more with adventurers of the past, whether they're Aboriginal people that have travelled the lands through to the early adventurers uh, that mapped out a lot of Australia just to get away from technology because they, they had the ability to truly separate themselves from their past life in a sense because they didn't have technology to remind them of friends, family, former colleagues, Sports stars, anyone you are associating with that has a, you know, maybe living a high, the high life, so to speak. Did you have to tune yourself to a different frequency or just get off tech? No, look, look, I try to keep the tech part in so that uh, I could share the story and share the kind of journey with people along the way. I've had a filmmaker, Cam Watt from from Melbourne, that's been documenting a little bit of it as well. So conscious to try and share a bit of the story along the way so you have to stay engaged with tech and then it's it's uh, the temptation for that to be a two-way street not a one-way street if you're sharing your story you're looking at other people's as well so you're still kind of in there and connected in that sense but the big element uh, like that I've been spending a lot more time on on this trip with is like all the local people like so if you you could rock around in the fanciest four-wheel drive and the nicest caravan and you walk up to a town and you just end up hanging out with other travellers. Like, uh, you know, you're in the caravan parks or where the other travellers come through. You might not meet a local other than someone's, you know, who's running a tourist kind of style thing. You rock up with camels and you connect with all the locals. Locals come out of the woodwork to see, yeah, you're doing the school visits, the aged care visits, you're stopping at a local pub and, and you spend 99% of your time with, with the locals of the area. Like, Right now I'm staying in a, uh, a you know, this guy's house who uh, was driving down the road and kind of saw us and we'd connected through Instagram and he, he just pulls over and goes, look, I've got to go to Launceston for a couple of days, but here's the keys to my house. Uh, I'll see you when I get back in a couple of days. And I'm like, nice to meet you too. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm staying in this place here. So you you get this really intense localised experience with people on the way through. And, and I realise that that's something that can't be replicated without the camels, like, you know, or, or coming through uh, with something that really draws them out. So I think that's why I keep on making the trip bigger because you get addicted to that experience. You realise how rare and how amazing and how privileged you are to be able to experience uh, a local area within 
you're already in the town for 48 hours and you ha- you're almost immediately a part of the community and you get that guided experience. It's very true. It's like a, a people take ownership of you a little bit. I, yeah. In a way, this is this is my perception of it because um, uh, my parents live in Bethanga and I know that you stayed at Bethanga Hotel. Yeah. Um, and mum, mum went down and she met you and she goes, oh, the camel man's down there and he's so lovely. <laughs> and, you know, and, and I know that you were embraced down there as well and it's almost like they want you to stay because you, you must exude such good, happy vibes as well that people want to hug you in and, and hold you tight as well. They, they say, like, if you smile at the world, the world smiles back at you. But when you're walking down the road with camels, the world's smiling at you. So yeah. you can't help but bring it back to the world with a nice smile and a hug or, or stick it around. Like, Bethanga was an overnight stay that turned into four days, you know, and they really did kind of jump in and, and, and embrace us down there. It was an amazing entrance into, uh, into Victoria. And uh, that's that's not, not rare on this trip. It's... Like that's where I say you you've got to realize how privileged it is to be able to experience the world in that way. And no matter what the community's going through, like we started off walking through the drought, like the worst drought ever, and then going through um, Gundawindi, Mori, Narrabri, these uh, communities that are really hurting. That you know, as a farming community, really hurting. But they're still opening their doors up. They're still buying you a beer or giving you a roast or you know, got a big smile on their face when they're coming out. It's then you're going through the fire. We went through the fire. The area is going through fire, suffering from fire, and uh, it's about to be consumed or has been. And there's still the same reaction again. And then COVID, it's the same reaction again. Like, yeah. no matter what community's going through, you just embraced. It's, it's awesome. Okay, man, we're just chiming in here quickly, right in the middle of this amazing stuff from John, just to ask people to maybe buy us a coffee. Well, I, I just want to know if you're sitting there having a coffee right now and enjoying this and listening to it, just maybe think of me. Maybe I might like a coffee as well. I'm not sure whether <laughs> getting them to think about you specifically will help us sell coffees, but I'm, I'm okay with the I feel experiment. Like we might be a little bit in their heads anyway since we're in their ears. Okay, so you've got to really take, got to dig your feet in, dig <laughs> your heels. <laughs> yeah. I, right. just, I, I just like cold and mind a coffee, please. And I'd probably also like one. So you can go to supportpunchingsideways.com and click on the Buy Me A Coffee button and it helps us do this whole thing. The whole thing. And he's flamboyantly throwing his hands up and just yeah. it's like the whole world I'm of just podcasts. excited by Johnny's just filling me with, <laughs> well, a coffee-like energy. <laughs> he's, he's pretty impressive. One of the things, speaking of embrace, uh, one of the things that my mum said was, "He gives such good hugs." <laughs> and hugs. It must be the beard. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know. And hugs are, you know, some people are, are worried about personal space and everything these days. But I know there's research of how much oxytocin that can release to people. And if you've got a stranger that's willing to embrace you in a hug, then that's a, spe- a very special thing that you must be going around sharing. So, and it was something that she she came back, one of her references, nothing else really about the camels. It was just you gave really good hugs. So, well done. A lot lot less hugging. uh, Yeah. Like. She must have got one of the last ones. Maybe maybe you knew what was coming. 
<laughs> I just want to quickly reference before we continue into your story is there is an amazing video that I want to share of you crossing the Bethanga Bridge into Victoria that your media did. And yeah. it's, it, we're going to share it because it just looks so beautiful. It's done up high. And how is that to see that video? It was really good. Like, so, because he, he came out and uh, the guy from your media came out and said, uh, you know, I'd love to film you tomorrow. What, you know, what time are you going to be crossing over? So it was all a last minute kind of thing. So in seeing it afterwards, I was like, thank God we captured that because that's, yeah. that's a pretty cool moment. Um, the New South Wales police even were so nice. They found out about it and said, we'll come out and we'll, we'll escort you across. So they didn't come out and tell us what to do. They came out and said, what do you need from us? And then at the end, shook my hand and said, thanks for coming through New South Wales. Really nice kind of interaction with the New South Wales police as well. So it was, uh, we were crossing through. And I think one of the things that made it look really nice is how low the water level was. Mm. So you had that big disparity between the where the bridge and the water level was, which just made it look so much more, uh, you know, epic. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, it was it was a pretty cool way to enter a state. It's a pretty epic bridge as well. Like I, I get caught every time I go out out that way. I stop nearly and just breathe it in. It it the water changes the look of the place so many times that you drive through. Is where is and I'm I'm not pushing you to say Bethanga at all. Um, what what area do you think has has left like the most significant lasting impression on you, be it from experience, people I know often impact things, but is there something that just sticks out in your your mind as, whoa? Yeah, so I think the, probably the Victorian high country, the, it, uh, specifically the section going from Jamison to Lacola, mm-hmm. there, was, there was just a lot that went on over a, a short amount of period going through there. So... After we'd finished that all and realised that we'd set the highest ever altitude camel trek in Australian history going across there, and I didn't really realise that that was going to happen at the time, but in the first week of heading up uh, to there, I'd made my way down a bridal trail and um, knew that there was some bad weather coming in. So I'd uh, hunkered down in a in a in one of the old uh, high country huts, uh, and for three days we were bombarded with like 200 odd mils of rain and uh, so the whole landscape just changed completely from walking in to trying to walk back out and we're stuck uh it was in a pretty precarious spot because there were all the side rivers that fed the jameson river were now all flowing down these hills and i've got to walk a 15 meter long 1.8 meter wide camel train down these tight bridle trails which are now a little bit slippery with sometimes water going across it so we got probably we were trying to backtrack to a uh, to get off this bridle trail about seven or eight kilometres to get back onto this four wheel drive track, and uh, about three kilometres from the end, uh, we had to cross this water that was going down across the bridle track, and the third camel along in the line because they're all attached together. I just hear it make a sound, and I realise the track has given way underneath. Uh, is uh, is feet, uh, and it's around about a fifty metre drop uh, near vertical straight down to the Jamison. So I had to 
come out on the outside of the camel train. I carry a big knife on my side and within five seconds I'm making the decision to cut this camel to where I thought was pretty much it's, you know, death. So cutting it out, I didn't really think about where I was. So both of us fall off the cliff. Um, I end uh, getting shoved down about 20 metres down into this thick net of blackberry bushes which which held me up uh, just in time for the camel to hit me on the on his way down. And then um, he gets down. Uh, I'm watching him flip over and over again, thinking, like, he's he's gone. My, my actual thought that went through my head was, thank Christ that's the camel with the, with the gun on him so, like, I can get down there and do what I need to do. And because uh, I'm looking at him going into the, the river, and then probably about 10 metres before the river he hits a tree, and that just kind of stops him up. So uh, after I rip my way out of the blackberries, well, as I'm doing that, actually, the only idiot who jumped off the cliff was my dog was licking my face. He's just like launched off. <laughs> so yeah, kind of get out, get down to him and uh, managed to be able to tie him up. Uh, we had a bit of rope uh, that, that was in one of his bags because I'd cut off all his lead rope. So he had no rope around here. So uh, managed to find some rope in one of the bags, had about three or four metres of rope to, to secure him to a tree and then start cutting his gear off. And then began like an hour long, you know, 30 centimetres one time and then, you know, half a metre another time anchoring tree to tree, digging goat tracks, trying to get him uh, away from the water and, and slowly up the side of this 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 uh, mountain hill, whatever you want to call it. So an hour later I get back up on the track and the other two camels, uh, two by two sets of camels have been just wandering the track about – 50 meters down i get around the corner and see i've got two more camels off off the side as well so holy crap that's uh, what i think oh, i got to press like a an sos so i hit my garmin in reach uh press the sos also i can text from that so i text one of the locals that i had met uh, who was a member of the cfa and uh they reckoned it was going to be about two or three hours before they came out so kind of got all the camels to a situation where they could be rescued all the gear was off and uh, then began a, a three or so hour rescue. So by the time I got all these camels up on the on the track again, using winches and pulleys and uh, and a lot of manpower, then they they have to abseil down where we fell off in order to retrieve the gear. So like they're doing a forty meter abseil to retrieve this gear, and then they're having to physically carry all that gear out whilst I've got these camels loaded up again as best as I can, and in pitch black, we're coming out on that same bridle trail that. I've been shit myself on in, in, in daylight, let alone pitch Holy black. Shit. <laughs> and the camels do pretty well. We get out that last two or three Ks and um, uh, is very happy that a couple of the CFA boys, which now call themselves the Large Animal Rescue Unit of Jameson, <laughs> uh, uh, stuck around to empty their last remaining bits of alcohol out of all my gear and they stuck around for, for a bit to celebrate my non-demise. So, so we had that. Uh, then, uh, sorry, John. Five, just just when you were saying before, you said we a lot leading into just that bloody incredible story. There, it was just you. When you're yeah. saying we, you're talking about yourself, the dog, and the camel. So you're. Yeah. Can you just Collective. describe for people that aren't familiar with the actual physical size of a grown camel, what you were dealing with in terms of the animals? Yeah. So um, the uh, when he's fallen off the cliff he's at 800 kilo dead weight with the with the bags and the camel and everything like that stripping the bags off he was probably about between 600 to 650 kilos it, on wet and soft ground as well 
they've got soft pads like a dog paw. They don't have grip like a horse. So trying to work them on anything that's slippery or, you know, they're not too sure-footed. So uh, a, a lot of the time, uh, you know, you've got them anchored off to a tree and he s- slips to go down again. You're trying to hold a 600-kilo weight in, in position by a quick, a quick tree anchor, not hoping that that tree holds, uh, you know, and, and then you hold. So, uh, yeah, that's – uh, what I might do is I'll send you a, a video which of um, me trying to at midpoint of, of bringing that camel back up, so you can really see what, what's all happening there. So people can put a little bit of a visual to what we were going through. Well, worst fears confirmed. The Arthur's halfway down a hill. Lots of, lot of his gears lost. He's bleeding. I've got him up about 20 metres so far. It's about another 10 or more to go, but it's fucking tough. Poor bastard's doing well. Oh, fuck. The other boys aren't tied up. Hope they haven't gone too far. I don't think they would have. Track only goes one way anyway. Oh, fuck. All right, I've got to keep trying to get this guy up a hill. Just anchoring him tree to tree, trying to pull him up, help him out as much as possible so we don't lose ground. But it's fucking tiring work, he's 600 kilos. <sighs> so the large animal rescue unit helped also to relieve you of any alcohol that you had left. <laughs> um, how, how long did it take you all to sort of recover from that? Because I feel like what's happened is you've you've done that um, epitome of, you know, when they say mums get superhuman strength when they're, yeah. where their children Lifting are in a car need. a child sort of thing. And you, you, you are so much ingrained and immersed with these children of yours, inverted commas, that there was no way that you were going to just leave them there, I suppose. You'd do everything that you could. To get them out. In in my mind, if I if I lost one camel at any point on this trip, then for me that's that's trip over. It's not just replace the camel and and, yeah. and keep going. You know, these aren't interchangeable for me. Yeah. Like we stop when we get to the end, or we stop if we if we lose one. And I'm like, I'm not. I wouldn't continue to to risk any of their lives in order to just get to the end. You know. So I guess that answers a question that I have in my mind, and I'm sure maybe the audience are wondering. Were any of the camels injured to the point where they were lost during that incident, or was there no, a re- no. was there a recovery time for the animals after that that you had to allow for? No. So uh, the one that did the big fall down the the cliff, we got the vet out the next day, so we had um, a, a full check over of the camel, just as a precaution. I um, he was off carrying saddles and bags for a couple of weeks after that. But it was really just a precaution. The vet basically said he's got some superficial scratching uh, that uh, scratches, but th- that's about it. So I get the the vet out to check over the camels. Didn't worry about a doctor for me. I just thought, you know, as the camels are good, I'm banged up, but I'll, I'll be all right. Uh, and then the next day we'll we'll walk it walking again. So the vet say, said because of the way the the saddle bags and the, the saddle was on the the camel, it perfectly kind of cushioned him as he was going down the bank. <laughs> So uh, he was. It was the right camel to go down because of the style of bags that he had on him. It was just any of the other camels, you know, 
the bags weren't as protective. This guy here had nice protective bags. Are we allowed to know who it was? That was Arthur. Was it? Yeah. So, yeah, I, d- I didn't know whether it was going to be a secret squirrel or not because you, you haven't mentioned the the one who caused you all the trouble. He should be Arthur the Bastard, not Bill the Bastard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it leads to the question of how exactly does Bill the Bastard get a name like that? <laughs> After that story. <laughs> Is there an incident that led to that naming? Uh, there's no there's no incident, but he's just always been the most vocal. Like, you know, he'll have a little whinge in the morning and he's uh, – I could walk past the whole entire camel line and most of the camels won't care, but if I walk past the front of Bill, he'll just turn around and he's got to say something to me. So uh, he's he's just a, he's the old man of the group, even though he's only one year older than the rest of them, <laughs> and he just acts like the old man, always like if he was a if he was a person, he'd be yelling at the kids to get off the lawn, you know, that's just like the kind <laughs> of camel he is. Yeah, right. That's awesome. Have they um got much more personality than what you're expecting. Yeah, so much more. Like, because when you're learning how to train a camel, you're kind of thinking, all right, well, it's like a cookie cutter model. I'll train them all and I'll get the same result. Yeah. And the same training is still netted five extremely different personalities out of these camels. It, it's it's been it's been really cool to kind of see that the, you, you have to start not going, well, this is the way you deal with a camel. You happen to go, well, this is the way Arthur likes it. This is the way I, I – I am with Jackson. Like you, you, you're no different to dealing with people. You, you, they bring something different out in you, and you bring something different out in them. Well, I've heard it said that thoroughbreds, to use a horse analogy, are like a an exposed nerve with a massive personality. How, yeah. um, I guess, people that have horses know that they they can be very emotional and they can be very different and volatile. What sort of range of personality does a camel have? Like, are they are they ever as emotional as, say, a thoroughbred horse when it comes to fussiness and that sort of stuff, or are they in a range? Or yeah, yeah, it's definitely a range. So, like the one that I'm closest with, Jackson, um, like he'll follow me around the paddock like a dog, and you know he'll come sit next to the fire and chill out with us for a bit as well. But he's the only camel that's tried to kill me, <laughs> uh, and so like he's. It, they, they'll still might have a tantrum. It's not anger or anything like this. It's just it's a tantrum. And if you imagine a, a seven hundred kilo seven year old, right, throwing a tantrum, they they don't they don't hate mum, but they might end up taking mum out because they're just <laughs> seven hundred kilos. You know, like so uh, you've just got to be kind of aware of that. Whereas Bill the bastard, like he's he'll complain about everything, but he's never thrown a tantrum or thrown a leg at me or anything like that. But the one I'm closest with that I get along with and hang out with the most, it, you know, is prepared to do that. So. so so he nearly killed you, yet Arthur, who <laughs> fell down a 50-foot cliff and took you through blackberries and everything, is not the one that nearly killed you. So what, <laughs> yeah. what what's Jackson done? Did he just nearly kick you or something like that? Yeah, so yeah, he just likes his own way. Maybe he's a little bit spoiled. So, you know, if he's not getting his way with a food basket or if he doesn't want to carry the saddle that day and you're trying to get him to sit down, it can be like, I don't want to do this. And the way he says, I don't want to do this is by getting up on his back legs and trying to, you know. Right. Mike so Tyson, yeah. He's <laughs> done it a couple of times. And, and I think the more, more you're around and the better you get to read it. So, uh, you know, I was probably 
on that last time he did it, I was probably trying to come at him going, no, you will sit down. He's like, no, I won't, no, I won't. And just it escalated to the point where he did that. Now I'm probably a little bit better at reading that escalation and coming at it from a different way. So I know we're going deep into the camel chats at the moment, John, but just one last thing maybe on the animals, if that's okay. Did you have to figure out over time the order of which the camels had to be in the train as far as their personality? Like, was is there, a, is there a leader that you need to have at the front and one at the back or are those sort of things even part of the picture? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, uh, and they kind of sort that out a little bit themselves, uh, you know, where, where they sit in it. But that in combination with being the most obedient camel, Ted was, Ted was always pretty much the front runner to, to be right up front. So he's the yeah most obedient. He'll follow the kind of call straight away on on whatever I ask. But he's also the only one that uh, well one of the main ones that loves to do a bit of projectile vomiting. So that that's why my my hat wears the. Uh... Uh, <laughs> Just for people that are listening, there's a few spots on John's hat here that are pretty noticeable. Yeah, there's a. It looks like you've had to go and scrape them off. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it's interesting you say that because I, I grew up on a dairy farm and similar in a similar vein, the cows going down to the dairy every day, there was always, they'd sorted it out. There was a leader. There was a few leaders that always just knew what was happening. They were calm. They let everyone else down. And there was also like the stragglers at the back that you'd always have to, you know, get the hurry on and that. And they formed their own sort of little pack and pr- progression, I suppose, and it would get to the point where I know when we moved and even stopped doing dairy, we had these few cows that were such good leaders, like you're saying, with with your camels, that we put them in and train like the the younger calves and that just to to be better and to know that you have to come at this time and all that sort of stuff. So it, it's definitely like there's personality in all animals and I can see they've got their own little pack sort of mentality and I think it's yeah, it's about like like you said you you guys learned that by sitting back and observing just how they how they roll how they yeah. go and as opposed to fighting against that learning to work within their system as opposed to trying to push things to know this is the way I want it to happen this is the way I want it to go and that was one of the big lessons at the start of this was you know in the previous life it was about uh you know organizing and structure and uh, running things to my schedule and the way I want to see things going. And when you're working with animals, you, you can no longer push them to your time schedule or, you know, you've got to switch to like camel time or switch to the animal time and start working with them. So you, you really have to take a back seat uh, sometimes in, and stop trying to impose your will on them, but start listening to them and go, all right, if I want to be a part of this herd, not just their dictator, I've got to learn how they operate and, and, to some degree, squeeze my plans and my uh, my thoughts around them. It's probably a very good lesson with people as well, right? That yeah. don't don't try and make someone into something that they're not. And in the same same vein as yourself, like by putting yourself into a place where you're not comfortable or people aren't allowing you to be yourself and be the fullest expression of yourself is also not a healthy thing. So it sounds like you're talking about animals, but it's also a very big life lesson that people could push into their own sort of worlds as well. Yeah, definitely. So it's funny that you brought up leadership and we just started maybe referencing John's former life. There was one quote on your website, John, that really stuck out to me this morning and that was, 
in just a few years, I was 20 years old earning over $100,000 a year and somehow I blinked and I was on the verge of bankruptcy. Decisions such as buying a sports car and not a house had pushed me to the edge financially. When that sports car was written off seven weeks later and the insurance company wouldn't pay out, I was left with a pile of debt that I couldn't see my way through. So you obviously have had multiple inflection points in your life where you've questioned who you are as a person and whether you're on the right track. It seems like there was an early hint that you knew as a person that there was maybe more to life than the appearance of success, cars, money, and that sort of stuff. And also, has there been anything from the trip so far that you think, wow, that's something I could take back to day-to-day life and really benefit from, like any learnings or... I mean, in in that uh, that day, it was, uh, it was yeah pretty close to uh, to bankruptcy, and that my my way of uh, trying to get out of that was still a focus on money. You know, like it, it was always like once I've got that, that's like the the golden lamp that I rub that will uh, afford me any wish and uh, you know my way out of everything. So uh, up and you know, all through my twenties and uh, first few years of thirties. It was the thought well, that is the priority, that is everything. Um, so when I um, when I started the company and it started to go well and I uh, started to have a few nicer kind of things around in life, there was a, there was a moment where I had a half a million dollar supercar and uh, a friend of mine uh, got the next one up, the next model up seven months after I got mine. And... I immediately started shopping for a new car and there was this moment through through that where I kind of went, what are you doing? You're constantly measuring yourself and your, your own happiness based on what someone else is doing. You're giving yourself no credit for what you've done or where you're at. You're kind of just going, well, it's still not good enough because someone else just did this, uh, which you have no control over. Uh, you know, the more successful you become, the more successful the people you hang out with, the more, you know, they're one step up from you. So you're, you know, if it wasn't the car, then maybe I'd get up to another level of success. I buy a $5 million yacht and, you know, you pull it into your pen and the guy next door has got a $7 million yacht and you're like, oh, shit. And then, you know, you're back in the office and you're doing it again because you want to get the next one. It just never ends. So I decided to kind of step off the train there. So I gave the car away to charity. If you're not happy with the game, you change the game. So uh, there wasn't too many other followers in that game. There wasn't a flux of cars getting away to charities. You didn't have a bunch of mates throwing cars at charities? (laughs) No, no, no. I'm just like, you do you, man. Um, And, uh, but that, that process, like I felt like a shackle was just kind of off. I was no longer competing on, on that kind of term. Like we're, we're in some new territory now. So that was probably like step one for me in questioning, uh, you know, material acquisition and, and, and just getting more money to consistently solve a problem. So uh, uh, just throw money at things until they go away. Or, or throw money at something until a smile comes. So when I looked at everything that brought me happiness in my life at that point, I realized that I could connect every single thing for uh, through a dollar, you know, like to, to uh, swipe in a credit card or whatever it was. So I realized that if I took the money away, I didn't really have any tricks in my book, like zero tricks in my book to put a, a smile on my face. Even if I looked at any of the charity kind of stuff that I was doing, I'm like, well, if I didn't have a dollar to contribute towards that, would I be at the table or the ability to generate a dollar for them? So 
that was the, when I had a few friends around me go bankrupt and I saw them struggling through that redefining themselves without money, uh, with that process, I realized that I'd probably hit it even harder if something like that happened. So, yeah, I started to think about what would life without anywhere, you know, anywhere near as much would look like and started to disconnect it and, and get away from uh, relying on that uh, financial means to in order to, to have happiness and success and achievement. So I wind up on this trek and I had set myself uh, about a hundred grand a year to get the trip going and after tax. And then I've got a son over in the UK, you know, make sure he's well looked after. I ended up with in my hand about, uh, you know, 50 odd, 50 something odd thousand dollars a year to kind of get the trek going. And then I spent about 40,000 on the camels and the gear and, you know, and run around, get, getting it, getting it ready. So it left me with $19,000 for the first year to live off. <laughs> so you go from literally one day, you know, the, the nice car, the house, and literally the next week, that's the new budget. So, Well, I was going to ask, John, how those conversations went when you were first thinking about upending your life in that way and moving on a new path. How You know, who were you speaking to? Did you trial a conversation on, you know, a friend as opposed to your parents or something that might not understand quite as quickly what you're giving up and why you're doing it? It sounds like for you it was pretty much – this is what's happening, and then the next week it was happening. I, I spent twelve months going through that process of leaving the, the 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 previous life without knowing what was next. But once you know it was right towards the end, and discovered the camels and this kind of stuff, it was it was all from the outside looking in. It might seem very very kind of quick, but I'd kind of mentally started getting through that over over a year. So anyone that was really close to me knew that I was preparing for it. You know, so the people that were close to me kind of got it. You know, we'd had 12 months of back and forth and what I'm doing with them. But anyone who was slightly outside of that internal kind of group was like, holy shit, what has this guy just done? Like, them, it just came out of like nowhere. Is that the coolest? So, yeah, like, it was. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's, mic, <laughs> it's, the ultimate mic, it's the ultimate mic drop. It is. It's yeah. a full yeah. life mic drop. I like it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> See you, bitches. <laughs> I, I think that you brought up something interesting in there about just the gear and acquiring stuff. I think Mel mentioned earlier to me that she was fascinated by some of the things that you've managed to keep doing through the trip as far as journaling the trip and producing the content and all that stuff. So is this an okay time, Mel, just to – I have two questions. Yeah, we can table that for a minute then. Yeah. Um. Well, no, we'll ask that right now because I, I, I'll come back to my other question. But how are you managing to do this? Because it all looks fairly like obviously um, technology has evolved a little bit, but you're here now, you're talking to us, you're doing a podcast, you're posting videos all the time. Are you doing all this yourself? I know you got a documentary coming out, which is cool. We'll have to plug that when that that is actually yep. out. But is this all just you just learning as you go. Haven't trained Charlie the camel how to do Instagram yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, the uh, look, it, at the start I was trialing everything. I was trying blogs, I was doing some videos, doing everything, and that it kind of really settled down after the first year because uh, I didn't want this to become like another job. Like, yeah. you know, uh, as soon as the Instagram and other things started to grow, I kind of relaxed and backed down on a lot of that stuff from the initial kind of hanging a banner out on my camel to create more kind of interest because I'd end up at camp every night either editing a video or replying to like a hundred Instagram messages of, from new followers that are like, Hey, I just came on. What's this all about? So 
I uh, I backed it down uh, a little bit, but I still try to share you know as much as I can on on uh, on Instagram and stuff like that. So I had to kind of figure out how do I uh, bring probably more tech that's been brought to a camel track like ever before. Like, <laughs> uh, how do I stay connected in order to share as much or as little as I wanted to? So that evolved on the trip. Like in Gundu Indy, I ended up uh, getting a communications company to come out and I said, oh, look, our mission is to install a mobile phone signal booster on a camel saddle. Yes. So we end up installing this uh, mobile phone signal be- booster on on Bill's the camel and we've got to, you know, figure out what, how to connect it to the battery and everything like this. And so we've got, we got that all sorted. So if we've got one bar of 3G, we've got that brings us up to full bars so we can connect. Uh, then we've got uh, how do we run all our power. So we've got a, a 125 amp hour lithium battery which runs off either uh, solar blankets and we've also got a 1 kVA Yamaha generator as well which we have on the side of a camel. So uh, no matter what happens we've got power, we've got a 35 litre Waco fridge, we've got a projector and a movie screen with surround sound so that we can have these like epic little movie nights in the middle of nowhere and uh, we can set a table for four for, for dinner. So if I have unexpected guests, you know, they're well kind of catered for and wherever that lounge room is. I really wanted to have the challenge of, of uh, bringing all this stuff to a camel trek, but a lot of those niceties and, and luxuries will probably drop off as I hit the middle of the desert. Um, so a lot of those uh, yeah, extras that are good now will probably just be replaced by water weight. So the weight of my cap on my camels won't change. But uh, it's just, you know, you, you're not looking for, to have a laptop out there. You probably want an extra five litres of water. So you've just got to constantly make those sacrifices to hit this more serious parts in the middle of the desert. But whilst I've been doing the East Coast, where that, that's not a problem, it's uh, all the way down from Queensland down to here in Tasmania, uh, yeah, it's it's great. You can have these luxuries. And, and it's uh, it's been good to kind of have a little bit of that tech involved with the appreciation of traveling in such an old style. So we thought that would be a good place to finish up today. In part two of our chat with John, we actually talk a lot about food, some more about Bathanga as well that comes up. And we learn a little bit more about what makes the man tick, which was really interesting. So keep an eye out for the next episode. It won't be too far away. If you're still listening to this and you're from Albury-Wodonga or the surrounding area, and you're also keen to support live music as it makes its return to the region, Mel is actually hosting or emceeing two consecutive Fridays at Beer Deluxe. The first Friday being Friday the 20th of November, and then also Friday the 27th of November. So if you want to support live music and also support Mel from Punching Sideways, check out those events. And yeah, just it's really important for us to get out and support these live music events as they start to open up again in the area. Okay, guys, punchingsideways.com to buy us a coffee, to share the show, and for this episode particularly and the next one with John, just share it with someone that loves an adventure story. That'd be awesome. Okay, talk to you soon. Bye-bye.